Psalm 16 is a simple psalm of trust. David, in it, he, in the beginning, he says, Pervert, per, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David's request for preservation is an expected benefit of taking refuge in the Lord. It's not like, Lord, heal me. It's, Lord, I know you're going to preserve me because I've taken refuge in you. And there's no occasion stated for this psalm. Uh, We don't know uh, when David wrote it or why he wrote it, but he gives a couple clues in the psalm as to what when he might have or why he did. One is in verses 3 and 4, he talks about those he has fellowship with. And maybe he was reflecting on that. Uh, Or... In verse 7, he talks about lying in his bed at night, considering the instruction that the Lord has given him. And perhaps it was during one of those reflection times that David wrote this psalm. But whatever the occasion, if there was an occasion for the psalm, a clue to the purpose of the psalm is in the superscription. It says that Psalm 16 is a, is a miktam of David. Now, there are words like this that we don't often or don't usually have good uh, understanding of what they mean. Some translations will translate it simply as a prayer of David. But the word does have a base meaning called of inscription. And I wonder if this psalm was inscribed somewhere in Jerusalem after David wrote it. Perhaps it was inscribed on the temple. And the reason for such an inscription would be, of course, to teach people. There are other five other psalms in uh in, in the Psalter that use this word mitkam, Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. And in Psalm 60, the superscription says, in addition that uh, to the, this being a mitkam of David, it's a psalm of instruction. It was something that could be learned from. And this psalm, Psalm 16, I think is also, we can look at as a psalm of instruction. It says, if David said, read this, it will teach you what it's like to take refuge in the Lord. And that fits well with David's commitment to the Lord. After he committed adultery and murder, he received forgiveness, and he talks about that in Psalm 32. And toward the end of Psalm 32, David makes a commitment. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So I think this psalm, as really all of them are, but this one in particular is is instructive to us. And that, as the word indicates, mitkam, it's an inscription. The other thing I wanted to mention before we get into the psalm is that the psalm is connected. Caleb mentioned last week that the psalms were compiled most likely during the um, exile in Babylon. Somebody, or perhaps several somebodies, compiled the psalms in the form that we have it today. And and the compilation wasn't random. It had purpose to it. We see that in the fact that there are five books in the Psalms. We see that in that uh, that the first two Psalms provide an introductory uh, uh, explanation for the rest of the Psalms. We see that in uh, in the first two books of the Psalms, there are, there are 59 lament Psalms, and most of those are found in the first two books of the Psalms. There are 41 Psalms of praise in the Psalms, 27 of those are in the last two books of the Psalms. So you have an organization of the Psalms where it's front-loaded in the front with lament, and as you move through the Psalms, there's more and more praise. And in fact, the last five Psalms in the book of Psalms are all about praise and worship. There is a purposeful organization to this. And I think there's a purpose in 
Psalms 14, 15, and 16 taken together. Psalm 14 laments the condition of people who reject God, and they're all counted as fools. It laments that there's no one who does good. Psalm 15, as Caleb showed us last week, asks who, who can dwell in God's holy hill. And the answer is no one, because we can't live up to the standards that God has set, except that God intervenes. And, of course, he did that through Jesus Christ. And it's because of him that we can dwell. But Psalm 16 then comes along and simply says, I take refuge in the Lord. And that's how we can be with him. So we have no one who does good. No, everyone rejects God too. No one can live on God's holy hill. But now, if we trust God, we can take refuge in, in him. Let's read the psalm. Psalm 16, 1 through 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent, the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being a refuge for us. Thank you that we can come to you and simply say, Lord, be my refuge. Thank you that we can trust you, that you'll do that, and that you'll hold us and take care of us. And may we have our hearts open to your word this morning, that we may understand what it means and what the benefits of taking refuge are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. So David begins here with what is necessary for the rest of the psalm. David's desire is to be preserved, that is, to be watched over, to be guarded. The word preserve, uh, the most common meaning is to be preserved from or through trouble. But just as significant, it also means that God will eternally preserve his people. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-eight: For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. This is also a New Testament idea. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, <clears throat> to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for your salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. David knows that the only true refuge, the only truly safe place, is God. And in these first two verses, David mentions the word God three times, using three different names. The first, in verse 1, <clears throat> he says, Preserve me, O God. That's the Hebrew word El, E-L. It's the most common name for God, and it's, it's the name that used, was used throughout the ancient uh, Near East for God. It simply means mighty one. The second name he uses in verse 2, where he says, I say to the Lord, Lord, there is Yahweh. God's personal name. 
signifying God's eternal self-existence, that he's creator and sustainer of all creation, that he's accountable only to himself, and that he is ruler of all creation and of all humans. We see this in Exodus 34, 6 and 8, 6 through 8. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and glorious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Third name, also in verse 2, David says, You are my Lord. The word for Lord there is the Hebrew word Adon or Adonai, which means master. So David recognizes that God is Lord over his life, whether he takes refuge in him or not. David recognizes that the mighty God, Yahweh, personal and self-existent, and the master over his life is the one in whom he takes refuge. So taking refuge requires an acknowledgement of who God is. You are my Lord. You could say that it takes a belief that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. The how of taking refuge is found in verse 2, and it's quite simple. David acknowledges that God is Yahweh and that the only proper and reasonable response is to bow to him and to take refuge. Another way to express this is that David has trusted God. Taking refuge is believing that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. David has given his life over to God, his master, and recognizes that it is only in God that any good comes. James recognizes this as well. James 1.17 for every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the rest of the psalm explains the benefits of taking refuge. And having chosen to take refuge, to put his trust in the Lord, David speaks of how that trust impacts his life. Now we've already seen the benefit of preservation. But the next one in verses 3 and 4 has to do with fellowship. As for the saints in the land, David says, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. This first benefit David illustrates by a contrast between those with whom he will have fellowship and those with whom he won't. In verse 3, David extols the excellent ones. He calls them saints or holy ones. It is in these people that David finds delight. It is these people who he loves, that he finds excellent and that he's happy to be with because they have made the Lord their refuge as well. An interesting alternative translation suggests that David is addressing the holy ones in whom he delights and is instructing them in what he says in verse 4. If so, it would read something like this. To the holy ones in the land, the excellent ones in whom I delight, I say. And then he goes on to instruct them. This would be in keeping with the purpose of the psalm. And really, this is you could look at this psalm as a personal testimony from David. And then David turns the contrast to those who are not holy ones. He says, these people will run after another god, and they will see their troubles multiplied. These will not find the refuge that David has found. There is no good apart from God. The New American Standard Bible says these people have acquired another god. The one who does not take refuge in the Lord will seek to find refuge in some other god or 
some other idol or some other personality or some philosophy or some political party. Anything but God. These are the fools of Psalm 14. David will not participate with them in their pursuit of other gods. James Montgomery Boyce says about this, he says, This is a practical matter, for it is a way by which we can measure our relationship with the Lord. Do you love other Christians? Do you find good and re- find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. Those who find their good in God will also find good in those who likewise, likewise see him. Nancy and I, when we were preparing to move here from California, you know, we've been in the church there for at least 20 years. And we had made very, very close friends and had good fellowship with them. And one of the things that we wondered about is when we come out here, what kind of fellowship will we have here? What kind of friends will we make? Will we make? And we discovered that the kind of fellowship that we had with our friends in California is the same kind of fellowship we have here. Uh, in spite of all the rumors, we love you guys. <laughs> and we're happy to be here. Nancy and I are involved in a grace group on Wednesday nights. We're involved in another grace group on Thursdays. Nancy's involved in women's ministry. I'm involved in man cave. We like being with you. We love the fellowship that we have with you. It's a good thing. I hope you have that same experience. The next benefit, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen, chosen portion and cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Three words, portion, cup, and lot. These words together recall the Jewish idea of the importance of land. The promised land for the Jews not only represented a place to live, but also economic and spiritual security. The promised land was the land that belonged to God, that God gave to the Jews. They would be secure there because the land was their physical and spiritual inheritance from God. The Hebrew word translated portion comes from the word, uh, the verb to divide, as in dividing the land. The promised land was divided among the tribes of Israel. To say that the Lord is my portion speaks of security, especially as it relates to inheritance. For David, the Lord is his inheritance. The Hebrew word for cup is often used to represent God's wrath, but it's also used to symbolize God's blessing. Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. In tandem, these two words become a symbol of the economic and spiritual blessing from God. And then there's the lot. David says that the Lord holds his lot. A person who held the lot held the responsibility for dividing the land. The granting of the land to the tribes of Israel was done by lot. For David, God held his lot, meaning that God held the economic and spiritual security for David's life. And put together, these words reflect David's trust in the Lord to provide for him and his security in God. Taking refuge in God means to rely on God for your provision and security. Paul understood this. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. 
David confirms that choosing God as his portion and cup results, in verse 6, that the lines have fallen for David in pleasant places. Lines is a reference to the boundary lines of a piece of land. The boundary lines that are given to a person after the lot has been chosen. For David, the lot gave him his beautiful and pleasant. And of course, David is talking about his security in the Lord. Psalm 37, 27 through 29. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall, your, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The next benefit is instruction and provision and protection. Psalm 16, 7 through 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart, also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is in my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Another benefit of taking refuge in the Lord is counsel and instruction. God gives David counsel. And in the night, David reflects on that counsel that God gave him. David reflects on it and takes instruction from it. And of course, the counsel is God's word. The point is, is that the Lord provides guidance and direction for the psalmist in moral choices. Based on the instruction of the Lord, David understands the direction of God, the direction of God for the choices David makes, and he, he praises God for this. God does that for us too, doesn't he? He instructs us in how we are to live. And along with getting instruction from, from the Lord, the act of taking refuge in him sets the Lord before the psalmist. We see that in verse 8. The word can mean opposite, but can also mean ahead as in a guardian watching. God, David says, is at his right hand. That's the place of a protector. And the image there is of a king or a prince walking along or going along with what we would call a bodyguard who would, who would be at the prince's right hand. And in the bodyguard's right hand would be a sword or a spear, and in his left hand would be the shield that would not only cover part of the bodyguard, but it would also cover the prince. And because of that, David says, he will not be shaken. And the word means there to be completely toppled or removed. Trouble will come. Taking refuge in the Lord means that you'll not be toppled. You will not be removed. And there's certainly a temporal component here, but the primary meaning is that David will not be spiritually shaken because he has set the Lord before him and has taken refuge in God. David and any who take refuge in him have both an instructor and a protector. This moves taking refuge from simply a place to hide to a place that provides direction for behavior and active protection from that which would seek the cause the follower of God to fall. Psalm 121, 5 through 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. <clears throat> In the scriptures, we're reminded that there are two kinds of strongholds. One kind of stronghold is what we've been, been talking about this morning, taking refuge in the Lord. But there's another kind of stronghold, and it's a bit different. It's the stronghold that the enemy can sometimes get on a believer's life. <clears throat> Such a stronghold is persistent sin. It's that sin you do, that you go to confession, you, you confess it to the Lord, you receive the Lord's forgiveness, and then you do that sin again and again and again. 
Such strongholds can be bitterness or idolatry, despair, jealousy, sexual immorality, insecurity, deceit, fear, and certainly others. And in this thing we call rooted, we talk about strongholds. We've done rooted several times here at Grace Life. And by the way, we're going to offer it again in the spring. And rooted helps us understand these strongholds and help us, helps us to find a way to deal with them. There was a stronghold in my life of pride. I would puff, my, puff myself up in my own mind, and then I would wonder why people didn't understand that. I would wonder why people didn't see me as I saw me, as important and special and significant. And this was a persistent sin in my life, and it prevented me from being used by God as, as much as God would have used me. And I doubt that anyone could see it. That is, I don't think anyone would have pointed at me and said, hey, there goes a guy who has a whole lot of pride. He's got a lot of sin in his life. It was internal. It was in my head. It was in my heart, as strongholds often are. Rooted points out how to deal with such strongholds. And this is the instruction I received from the Lord. This is the direction for my life that I, that I received from the Lord to deal with this stronghold. This is the instruction and the protection that he gave me as I set him at my right hand. I can't tell you today that I never deal with pride anymore. But I can also tell you that the enemy does not have that stronghold in my life anymore. It's because I have taken instruction from the Lord. It's because I have set the Lord before me as my guardian and protector. Verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David is rejoicing. He is glad that his flesh dwells secure. And as you might guess, flesh here refers to David's physical body. David dwells in safety because he has taken refuge in the Lord. But there's something remarkable here that comes next. In verse 10, David declares that God will not abandon him to Sheol. That is, he will not enter the realm of the dead and he will not see corruption or decay. Given the place where this comes, that's a stunning statement. The scriptures speak of Sheol. Sometimes it's called the pit. The pit pictures the grave and Sheol spoken of as the grave. In the Old Testament, it's the place where both the righteous and the wicked dead go. It's not really a place of torment, but it's not really a place of reward. And early on in the Old Testament and throughout Jewish theology and history, that's about all we know about Sheol. It's about all we're told about it. But there are suggestions that other things can happen. There are suggestions that the righteous person may be taken out of Sheol at some point. But as you move through the history of the Old Testament and through Jewish theology, there are hints given as to what happens after death. In Psalm, or excuse me, in uh, Isaiah 38, it's, the suggestion is made that the righteous dead can escape Sheol. I appreciate Jesse reading from Psalm 30 today, where David says he is rescued from the pit. Jonah said that God rescued him from the pit. By the time of the New Testament, it's understood that the righteous dead go to what's called his Abraham's side, which is a place of reward, and it's separated Sheol, which is now a place of torment, and there's no ability to cross from one place to the other. Jesus speaks about this in Luke 16. David's statement, coming when it does, 
where there has been up to that point in the Old Testament very little said about Sheol or in what happens after death except this vague idea of Sheol, as I said, is stunning and it's amazing because David is saying that for the one who takes refuge in the Lord will not see, that is, will not experience either Sheol or decay. We'll come back to this in a bit. And we get to verse 11, which says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. This final benefit of taking refuge of the Lord is in this verse, and it's really a conclusion, not just a conclusion of the psalm, but of what taking refuge in the Lord means. It's a high-level view of the blessing of taking refuge in the Lord. It seems to be talking about both temporal and eternal benefits. It says that God leads us. He makes known to us the path of life. Christ has shown us the path of life, both now and for the future. John fourteen six, Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We do experience joy in God's presence, not just joy, but fullness of joy or absolute joy. It is with God whose presence dwells in us through Christ where there is full joy. John fifteen eleven, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Or excuse me, may be full or complete. Finally, at God's right hand, we experience the highest pleasures of eternity. Pleasures here refers to the source of joy, which is the Lord. And it's worth noting here that while in verse 8, which we looked at a minute ago, God is our, is our guardian who stands at our right hand, here in verse 11, the believer is at God's right hand. When one is at the right hand of the ruler, one is part of the ruler's family and rules with him. Scripture says say that we are adopted into God's family and that in eternity believers will reign with him. It is there that we will experience the fullest of pleasure. Psalm 21, 6. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. The major factor here in all of this is being in God's presence. Christ said that he will make his home in us. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Coming back to this idea of eternity, verses 8 through 11 are all about Christ. How do you know that, you might ask? Well, if you ask that, we know that because Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached a message of salvation to the astonished Jews who were there. And in part of his sermon where Peter declares that Christ rose from the dead, he applies Psalm 16, 8 through 11 to Jesus Christ. Acts 24, or 2, 24 through 32. Peter says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is the Greek word for Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb was, is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Psalm 16, 8 through 11 is messianic. It is about Jesus Christ. And according to Peter, David, as he wrote this psalm, somehow knew that he was writing about the resurrection of Christ. It is both a prophecy and a confirmation of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Jesus did not experience decay, nor was he left in Hades. And it's also a confirmation of the resurrection from the dead of all those who have trusted Christ, those who have taken refuge in him. Everyone who makes the Lord their refuge will be raised. Psalm six or Romans six five. For we have been united with him, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Think about Job in this. Job was weary and he was spiritually drained, and you know the story. He had lost nearly everything that meant anything to him, including his health. And Job had three friends who came to mourn with him. And they're good friends for doing that. But after a while, they started talking with Job. And they also, they came down and basically said, Job, the reason all this happened is because it's your fault. You sinned. You've made God angry. You've disrespected God somehow. It's your fault that all this has happened. In the face of that, like David... Job also makes a stunning statement about his future. Job nineteen twenty five through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Psalm 16 directs us today to put our trust in the Lord, that is, to take refuge in him. That trust, that taking of refuge in Christ, brings us all the benefits of the, the psalm talks about and brings us the benefit of not experiencing Sheol or Hades or hell. But rather, we'll be taken with Christ, who is at our right hand now as our protector, and where we'll be, we will be at his right hand in heaven, part of his family and ruling with him. Another way of saying Trust is to say that we believe the gospel, that Christ died, rose again, and ascended to heaven to pay for our sin and to give us the right, as John the Apostle says, to become the children of God. A couple of things to consider. If you have believed that Jesus Christ paid for your sin on the cross, on the cross, and that he died and that was resurrected, you have taken refuge in the Lord. But Let's face it, sometimes we believers lose our way a little bit. Sometimes we get overwhelmed by the trials of life. We get consumed by great suffering or even small suffering. We look around and agonize about evil in the world and even in our own neighborhoods and families. And we get weakened by sin. So I would suggest to you that you can take refuge in the Lord again. Not for salvation, it's not a matter of being saved again but it's a matter of getting back on the path God wants you to be on. The way you do that, like David, say to God, you are my Lord. That is trusting him with all the struggles you have, recalling the benefits available to you as you make him your refuge. Taking refuge means trusting God for your entire life, both for now and eternity. Perhaps you can begin each day when you wake up in the morning, or if you're like me, when you stumble out of bed and hit your head on your way to the bathroom, after you wake up a little bit, you could say, 
like David, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Perhaps like David, you can end each day by lying on your bed and reflecting on what God has taught you and what he's done for you. Perhaps you could print out Psalm 16. And as being a mitcan, use it as perhaps as it was intended as an inscription somewhere in your home to remind you of the joy that is yours by taking refuge in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being our refuge. And thank you, Lord, for giving us a place to hide. Thank you, Lord, that it's not just a safe place, but it's a place that has so many benefits of security, of protection, of provision, of eternity. Thank you, Father, that we can come to you and rely on you for all of these things and trust you for all of these things. May we be, Father, people who say, even every day, you are my Lord. May we be the people, Father, who constantly follow you and that when we get and when we stumble and when we make mistakes, when we mess up, Father, that we come right back to you and say, you are my Lord. You are my protection. You are my eternity. You are my refuge. In Jesus' name, amen.